we just prayed a very scary prayer. Do you guys realize that? How many can say we prayed a scary prayer? Because we just asked God to take a look inside of our lives and say, okay, if I can't see it, show it. So this week, God says, okay, I'll do it. And God can reveal to us what's really cooking on the inside, stuff that you and I may not be paying attention to. When we, we're going to turn in our Bibles here to John's Gospel, Chapter 2. We've just started a series on the Gospel of John. And I want to just talk about an incident, an event in the life of Jesus, cleansing the temple. You know, worship is all about adoration, the complete giving of ourselves to God. And I'm going to ask us some questions this morning as I'm asking myself. What kind of a worshiper am I? What kind of a worshiper are you? Are we? Are we passionate? Are we devout? Are we faithful? Or has our worship become defiled, routine, secondary in our lives to other interests and desires? How devoted are we to Christ, to the things of God, and what standard are we using to measure our lives? Now think about your vehicle for a minute. If it started once every three tries, would you say your vehicle is reliable? Or if your refrigerator stops working for a day or two every now and then, would you say, oh well, it works most of the time? Or if your hot water heater, this is one I really love, or your hot water heater provides a cold shower every now and again. You're already thinking about this one, right? Would you say that's a dependable hot water tank? Or if you missed a couple of loans every year, does the bank say, oh, well, 10 out of 12 times, that's pretty good? Right, they'd say that, right? Or if you fail to show up for work once or twice a month, would you be considered someone they can really count on? Or if you fail to show up to church once or twice a month, would you be really considered a true worshiper? Hmm. It's interesting that we can expect faithfulness and reliability from things and other people. But what should God expect from us? The problem is that when it comes to the things of God, we see ourselves as volunteers. As when I'm a volunteer, I'm not getting paid for this, so therefore, it's optional. That's how we think. But let me tell you something. Long before I was a pastor, I was where you were at. And I remember one day coming to church, and you know, God has a funny way of really getting a hold of you. You have no idea when you come to church what God's going to say or do, do you? No idea. That's right, Russ. You have no concept what's going to happen today. And I was sitting in the service, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit began to speak to me about really being a true slave of Christ, a love slave. Now, how many know that a volunteer can behave a certain way? A slave, that's a whole new ballgame. You don't have options when you're a slave. You know, <clears throat> Judah, in the time of Christ, was a highly charged religious environment. Kind of like today in Israel. If you were to travel to Israel today and you'd go to the Temple Mount, you'd have Friday, if you were walking in Jerusalem, you'd see a whole bunch of Muslim people heading towards the Temple Mount because there is a mosque up there and it's a very devout environment. And then on the Saturday, of course, you have around all the Jewish people, you know the whole day is messed up because it's a Sabbath and even they program the elevators. Do you know that, that there's a Shabbat elevator that when you get on it, it stops at every floor, whether you want it to or not. And if you're on the 12th floor, good luck. It's like 12 stops to get to your floor. It's the way it works. It's Shabbat. It's a highly religious environment. Christians are there, and you know most of the Christians that go to Israel, they're excited about being there. So are you getting a picture? It's a highly religious environment. But you know what? It's always been a highly religious environment. Do you know if the Jews at Jesus' time were actually united, they could have defeated the Romans? That's a shocking statement. You know, I was reading Josephus' account of the fall of Jerusalem, and he shared it how divided the Jews actually were in the city, and the Romans would have never defeated them 
But you know, they destroyed themselves. They were actually fighting amongst themselves physically and literally burning their own food supplies from each other until finally they got into a state of starvation. It was a bizarre thing. You know, the Jewish people, in their understanding of God and in their religious expression, have always been divided. They're still divided today. You go to Israel today, there's Orthodox Jews. You've got conservative Jews. You've got, you know, almost secular Jews. You've got people who have no religious feeling. You've got all kinds of understanding of what's happening there. And you know, it was the same way in the time of Christ. In the New Testament, we read of at least two groups that are known because they're stated. You know, the Sadducees were primarily made up of the aristocratic group of people, and they held many important political positions. However, to maintain this place, they had to compromise with the Romans, and therefore many of the common people were not very sympathetic towards the Sadducees. Of course, they were the privileged people. They had the money. And they were the ones that, from, you know, that, you know, that the government, the parliament, the Sanhedrin, was primarily consisted of Sadducees. The high priest was a Sadducee. They were the ones that were focused in on temple worship. They were, you know, you may not know that, but the Sadducee party really locked into temple worship. Now, Jesus criticized the Pharisees more than any other group. This is very interesting to me. They had, and I think the reason he did it was because they had the greatest influence on the masses of the people. There was about 6,000 Pharisees in the day of Christ, scholars estimate. And the Pharisees, the basic difference between the Pharisees and the other streams of Judaism was their acceptance of the oral law. And they actually treated it as if it was the canon. In other words, it was inspired of God. And so what would happen is, not only did they believe in the first five books and the writings and the prophets, but they also believed in the oral traditions. And so Jesus sometimes would say to them, you guys are negating God's written word because you're following your oral traditions. He got really upset about that. And I kind of brought that out last Sunday in my message. And then there was another very small group that numbered in the hundreds. They were the Essenes. Many scholars today believe that the Essenes were originally a group of Sadducees that were really upset because the, the Sadducees in Jesus' time had appointed a high priest that was from the wrong family. So he was like they weren't following the biblical guidelines. And so they felt like they were the non-purists. And so if you went to the temple in Jesus' day, there were things going on there that an Essene would think absolutely disgusting to him. And so in their frustration with mainstream Judaism, they ended up moving out to the wilderness. They were kind of a separatist group. And they lived in some caves near the Dead Sea, and that's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this town that they built, this little community called Qumran, probably had 125 to 200 people. Now, there were other scenes in the area, but there was not a big group of people. Now, the main issue of difference between the Sadducees and the Essenes had to do with purity issues. The Essenes had a far stricter view of the Torah. And they felt that the Sadducees were compromising their faith. They were lax in their worship. And it should be noted that the central element and the focus of the Sadducees was the temple. And so the Essenes, what they, what they did, since uh, what the, the Essenes felt that the Sadducees really had defiled the physical temple with their moral impurities, they decided to not only move away, but they believe that the true worship was internal, that the temple was not necessarily a location. As a matter of fact, they started to believe that because they were in community, they became the dwelling place of God, which is what a temple is, a house, for, a house where God dwells. They believed that they were the dwelling place of God. How many are getting a sense now that these guys are actually moving a little bit along the lines of what Jesus is going to teach? So you can understand already in the background a number of things. Number one, not all Jewish people thought alike. Number two, they had different ideas about how to worship God. Number three, that there were a lot of Jews in Jesus' time were pretty disgusted about what was happening at the temple. We need to understand that background. So that's what I'm trying to get across to you, that there were Jews disgusted, with the impurity and uh, you know, the, the relaxed attitude that the Sadducees had towards temple worship. 
Now Jesus kind of weighs in on this issue of worship with another group of people called Samaritans. Now the Samaritans actually had some Jewish roots to them. They were a mixed group of people. You know, they were part Jewish and part some other groups of people. And so they had a whole different understanding of how to worship God. And it went something like this. They believed in only the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And because the books, those first five books, never mention Jerusalem, but they do mention the blessings and curses coming into the promised land, and because they lived in the north, they believed that the worship of God should happen on Mount Gerizim. Are you following this? And so they had a problem. They said, listen, Jerusalem's nowhere mentioned in the first five books, so why would you worship at Jerusalem? Gerizim is mentioned. And so they had this dispute with the rest of the Jewish population where to worship God. So are you already getting an understanding that there's some technicalities about how to worship, where to worship? And it's this context we need to understand to really get insight into what's about to happen right now in the story that I'm going to tell you about Jesus. So this woman who happens to be there in Samaria, Jesus is passing through. He's tired, he's thirsty, it's noon, he's hot, he's hungry. He stops at the well in the heat of the day. There's only one person there. He sent his disciples off to get something to eat, and there's this woman. And she's got something to draw water with, and Jesus engages her in conversation, which was a very shocking thing to happen. Number one, Jews avoided Samaria. They'd travel around it to go to Galilee. Number two, they were, the fact that Jesus was passing through Galilee was a bit of a stunner. Number three, men never talk to women in public, especially strangers, and neither would a Jew talk to a Samaritan. So all kinds of taboos were being violated at that moment, and yet Jesus is reaching out to this woman. How many are glad that Jesus is like this? You know, he kind of blows things away for, you know, all of the hang-ups that we have about people and situations. And so she said, asked him the question, where should we worship, this mountain or in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So what is Jesus teaching us? It's not about location. Are we getting that? It's not about location. Then he says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, in other words, you don't have a full understanding of what's going on. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. In other words, we've got it straight. And salvation is going to come through this, this part, the, you know, the Jewish strand, the, you know, this group. And then it says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father is seeking. So in other words, what we get from Jesus is God is looking for a certain type of worshiper. How many see that? And it's a worshiper that's not hung up on location as much as they're hung up on that they're doing it with the right heart attitude in spirit and in truth. They're, they got it right. And they're looking for that. And then God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So when Jesus comes along and cleanses the temple, it was not a shocking thing to some people. Because there were already people already questioning what was going on at the temple. There were already some people in protest of worshiping at the temple. We already get this. And now Jesus is going to make a statement. And I believe the statement that Jesus is about to make is simply uh, the need for the old way to be renewed and purified. That the way things have been going needs to change. And that's what he's about to say in this, in this actually, the second sign in John's gospel. See, John is going to give us seven signs of who Jesus is. So what can we learn from Jesus regarding the cleansing of the temple? And the first thing is that this is a prophetic picture of what is about to happen. And um, so what is about to happen is that Jesus is about ready to change the nature of worship. Now let's take a look at the story. In John chapter 2, verse 13, we pick it up. It says, When it was time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And then Jesus did something that seems so out of, out of characteristic of who he is. And I've got to bring this up because, you know, we're so locked into an image of Jesus. You know, sweet, gentle Jesus. Now, I believe that Jesus is sweet, okay? Everybody follow this? 
I, I believe that Jesus is gentle. I believe he's humble. I believe he's caring. I believe he's forgiving. I believe he's compassionate. But I also believe that he's also, he can get morally indignant. He can get angry. He can address issues. He's, got, he's, he's courageous. You know, we've put him in a box. And right about now, Jesus is going to move us out of his box. Because it says, he made whips out of cords. And then it says, he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers that overturned their tables. Now, I think what Jesus, Jesus money changers, yeah, just please move. I don't want anybody to get hurt here. Just move aside here. Let me, let me, uh, let me dump the table here like See, that's what Jesus did, right? And, well, you know, that's the picture that I get from a lot of Christians. I mean, you know, there's no passion. And Jesus is going to be a very laid-back approach to, you know, getting rid of the, the money changers. Ready to go, yeah! Yeah. I think it was a little more intense, folks. I think it was a little more shocking. I think Jesus did something to get people's attention. Do I have your attention now? Thank you. It says here, it goes on, to those who sold, sold doves, he said, get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? I don't think he just said, well, can you get these things out of here? You see, I'm trying to paint a picture of what was going on here. We need to understand that Jesus was angry. He had moral indignation. He was upset. He was disgusted with these people. Are you getting that picture? See, you need to see Jesus as he really is because I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes Jesus gets absolutely disgusted with some of the stuff we're doing. And we're walking around going, oh, it's no big deal. I want you to know Jesus has come to clean house. And you go, where's the house? My point is, the temple is inside of us. We're the temple. And he's come today to clean your house. And it can be upsetting for some people. Because they're going, I kind of have it the way I want it, Pastor. I got everything in the place where I think it should go. And when we invite Jesus to come in like we did this morning and say, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Do you know that we have such high levels of denial and rationalization that there are things happening in our soul we're not even aware of that absolutely disgust our God? But when we pray this prayer, we're given him permission to bring things to our attention. Now, how is he going to do that? He's going to bring an interesting week before us to see some of the garbage that needs to be taken out of our house. Amen. I think in cleansing the temple, Jesus making a powerful statement, I've already said, to literally get rid of the old, renew and purify. You know, this is an absolute sign that reveals something of Christ's mission. Jesus came to prepare the human heart to worship God. The temple with its sacrificial system had been a provision to address sin, but had over time degenerated into, for many, a mere ritual. And for some, religion was now big business. It's going to shock you, but you know, there's a lot of money in religion. Big-time money. And there's some people making big-time dollars. And it's a tragedy. It's a travesty. And I'll tell you something. Woe to the individuals right now who think they're serving God, teaching people that it's all about money, and do not understand that God's going to judge very severely. Because, you know, when I read 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, it says some people erroneously teach or believe that gain is godliness. And what they basically teach is that if you serve God, God's obligated to prosper you. So if you give this amount of money, you're going to get that amount of money. Now, I do believe in sowing and reaping and all those principles, but let me just tell you something. There's no guarantee what God's going to do. You and I are not the masters. You and I, it's not a little magic trick. It's not the right formula. It's not saying the right thing. It's about learning to be God's servants and allowing God to take care of our lives. Now, does God bless us? Of course he does. Does God, you know, give more to some than others? Of course he does. 
Does God have an expectation when he gives more to us than others? Of course he does. But it's not just about us. There's a reason for what he's doing it. And we need to understand that. You know, uh, I think Jesus is confronting uh, the unnecessary barriers that were put in the way of the, the common worshiper and keeping them from truly connecting with God. Don't you think that some of our behavior as Christians is actually keeping the world away from God? Don't you think some of the things that they watch on TV, they just roll their eyes and go, I can't believe these people are that gullible? You know, I'll sell you some holy oil. Come on, guys. Wake up. You know, I can just go down and buy some olive oil and, you know, sell it to you for a whole bunch of money, you know. Guaranteed, this will heal all the sick. I mean, what kind of nonsense are we into? It's bogus. It's not biblical. It's actually a form of heresy. It is. You need to know that. You know, Bishop Westcott was probably right when he saw in this incident a commentary on Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. Listen to what Matthew, Malachi sorry, writes. Listen to what Malachi says. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Now, I believe that Jesus says later that this was John the Baptist. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. See, I think this is where we're, what we're seeing right now. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In other words, when he comes to his house, he comes to clean house. And we notice in this text in John's gospel, John has it at the beginning of his Gospel. And then the other synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they have it at the end of his ministry. And so there's been all kinds of debate. Did Jesus clean the temple twice? Or was it just the one time and maybe at the end? And John uses that to teach a lesson. And there's great debate and nobody knows. So I don't know either. So I'm not going to even pretend to give you the answer to that one. But all I know is he went to the temple and he cleansed it. And it was symbolic of what Jesus was trying to communicate to the people of his time. It says here, he will be as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by as in former years. In other words, there was a time when people truly offered before God what was right, but eventually it became defiled and polluted. It became about other things other than really connecting with Almighty God. And eventually it actually became a barrier for people to worship God. And then it goes on in Malachi to say, so I will come near to you for judgment. I want to just stop and talk about this for a minute. You know, I am so thankful that we're living in a day of grace. You need to hear that. And I am so thankful for God's long-suffering nature and his patience. I am so thankful for that. But I also know that God will judge us for our sins. And God has always judged humanity for its sins. And God will continue to judge humanity for its sins. And we're moving towards the end time. And when we get there, what will happen in the book of Revelation? Humanity will be judged for its sins. And I am so tired of hearing Christians, you know, say, don't judge me or don't judge this. I'm going, listen, God's going to judge you. Now, I don't think we should be necessarily judging each other. But, you know, some things... They become obvious. Listen to what it says here. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, and those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I'm going to judge them. Now I'm going to you know, just say this so that we understand something. You, know, you might say, well, how does all of this apply to me? Good question. Do you not know that your body, Paul says, listen, in the church today, because the temple's been destroyed now, that was God's plan. As a matter of fact, isn't it interesting that when Jesus was looking at the temple in Matthew 24, and the disciples were pointing it out to him, you know what Jesus said? He was saying, not one stone will be left on another. As a matter of fact, he overlooked the city of Jerusalem and wept because he knew that as a nation they would reject him as the Messiah. He was weeping because he could see 
about 30 years down the road, the destruction that was coming to that city. And the removal of the temple, Paul now says, listen, the temple is not about location. Jesus had said it. Paul said it. Stephen said it. Stephen got killed because he said it. You know, you touch people's sacred objects, and boy, you can get, you know. Holy cows make good hamburgers, but it might cost you your life. It's true. Go to India, kill a cow. I'm making hamburger. Find out what happens. You will be in trouble. It's sacred. You know, where's the temple today? The temple is where God dwells. Where does God dwell? In us. Paul says this, and he says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Boy, we've got to get a hold of that last phrase. We need to get a hold of that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you understand it. Your spouse is not yours. Your kids are not yours. Your house is not yours. Your vehicle is not yours. Your life is not yours. Your job is not yours. Your health is not yours. Your body's not yours. Anything that I leave out? I think I, got, I covered most of it. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. What is Paul saying? Give God everything you are. You've got to give it all to him. You know, get away from this volunteer mentality. I'm a Christian, and you know, I just chip in when I feel like I've got other things to do. What kind of a worshiper are you? What are you giving God? So when Jesus comes on the scene, he addresses the defilement going on in the temple. You know when the day of Pentecost came, what came down? The Holy Spirit. How did he come? Fire! Why fire? What does fire do? (laughs) It purifies. It burns up. You know, I've been praying this year, God, send the fire. Take away the defilement. Revive us as your people. Get us turned around. There's so much garbage. Man, you could have a huge bonfire, God, in our church. Just light the match, and she's going up. All kinds of junk is going to go up and smoke. Isn't that true? Then we'll get down to what's really important. You know, do we have to have a near-death experience to find out what's really important? It's just a thought. You know... The question we have to ask ourselves is, how are we living our life? Because God has come to address sin issues in our soul. Are we living to please God, or are we busy abusing others? And for those who are violating God's ways, you know, a lot of times we think, well, I, you know what, you know why we, we, we think God's not passionate? Because sometimes we see injustice in our world, and nothing seems to happen. Sometimes we see terrible things in our world, and it doesn't seem God's moving on these things. But I, I want to just point out to you, God has a way really of moving forward in addressing these things in his time. I'm going to just skip a little bit here. Oh, go back, right here. So what can I discover from this incident of God's passion? And it's simply this, that we think that because God's not acting fast, he doesn't care, he's apathetic. God is not apathetic, folks. Matter of fact, Peter says the Lord is slow in keeping his promises. As he says he's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what's going on? If I am messing around in my life, I'm going to just tell you right now what's going to happen. And I don't address this thing. And just because God doesn't lower the boom right away, The reason he's not doing that is he's giving you a space to change your mind. That's what repentance means. And to address that issue in your soul. And you may be fooling around and it's just going on and it's in the dark and nobody knows, but I'm going to just say this to you. There's going to come a day. I promise you'll come a day. Exposure is coming. And you will be shamed and disgraced because you didn't deal with it. And I'm telling you to this morning, this is a warning. The Holy Spirit is speaking to some of you right now, and he's going, if you don't deal with this, I'm going to take you to task. And that is a mercy of God to deal with your sin rather than let you perish in your sin. That is a mercy of God to do that. 
And I'm just going to say it's a lot better to say, okay, God, help me. I know I've got an issue, or I may not know I've got an issue, but I want this dealt with. Because, you know what, we cannot play games. And that's what these people were doing. And I'll tell you what happened. They lost everything. The people who play games lose everything. It's true. It happens over and over and over again. You know, we're so oriented to grace in our society, we have a hard time believing God's going to judge humanity. Well, if God doesn't judge us for our sins, you better start apologizing to people like the, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because we have a lot more light than they have. And you know, they carried on in their sin, and eventually one day God says, I hear this great cry coming up into heaven, and there's all of this oppression and abuse and heartache and brokenness, and I'm going to deal with all that crud down there. I'm going to deal with that junk. And God came down, and he pulled out one guy. Now, God is going to spare the righteous, but I'll tell you what, that whole city got leveled. So did Sodom, so did Gomorrah, so did a few other cities on the plains. God judged them. Now, I want to point out something to you guys that you may not think the way I think, but this is how I see it. The end result of human sin is always death. Anybody want to argue that point? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. The consequence of sin is broken relationships and separation and loss. Amen? I want you to think back to the 20th century for a minute. We had a war at the beginning of the 20th century. It was called the Great War. It was the war to end all war. Millions of people perished. What was all that about? Human sin. What was all that about? Divine judgment. Let me move on. It wasn't enough. By 1919, we had a flu called the Spanish influenza that destroyed millions of people. More people died in 1919 than in the four war, years of war. But it continued on. In the 1930s, we had a Great Depression. By the late 1930s, we had another war called the Second World War where millions of people perished. Hitler killed, I think, 30 million people. Stalin killed close to 40 to 50 million people. And I'm going to tell you something else. We've had genocides in Rwanda. We've had it in um, Cambodia. We've had parts of Sudan. We've got famine. We've got war. We've got plagues. Everything Revelation is talking about, we have been experiencing it in the 20th century. Now let me just say all of this. What's all that about, Pastor? It's about sin. It's about judgment. It's about death. It's about dying. Sometimes in our affluence as Canadians, we have not been touched the same way. The wars have not been fought on our soil. We haven't had genocide in Canada. We have been touched by a depression in the 1930s. And boy, if you talk to your, my grandparents, so most of you wouldn't know most of them, they went through a lot of heartache. A lot of them fought on those beaches and lost their lives. Why? Because it took courage to stand up against Hitler. And people had to perish for us to enjoy our freedom. But can I point out to you, by 1950, 65% of all Canadians attended church. Today, we're lucky if 15% of Canadians attend church. And we have a culture today that is so far removed from God, and they've turned their back on God, and we're living the good life, and we're smart, and we're technologically savvy, and we're enjoying this great life, but we're just living on borrowed time, friends. That's all it is. It's borrowed time. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We have a window of time right now where we need to bring the good news of Jesus to the people in our culture because there'll be a door shutting somewhere like it did on the ark, and the opportunity will come to an end, and people will not have that opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus Christ and to experience grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And before we sit down and judge all the non-believers in our country, we're in this state today because as a culture, as a church community, as the people of the living God, we have been so consumed with living the good life that we've missed the responsibility of bringing the good news of Jesus to the people in our culture. They're lost. They're hurting. They're broken. They're dying. They're perishing for all of eternity. It's not just the religious leaders of Jesus' day that were playing church. God's deeply concerned about how we treat each other and how we're treating those that are trying to come to God. So let me move on 
just to the second point here, and I'll close. What can we learn from Jesus cleansing the temple? Well, first, it was a prophetic picture of what's about to happen. Secondly, that whenever you and I challenge the status quo, you can expect there will be opposition. You can expect there will be pushback. You can expect there will be persecution. You know, we're always shocked when people question or oppose those who address issues. Most people today are very uncomfortable with confronting issues because that means we expose ourselves to criticism and conflict. Can I be really honest with you today and just say this about myself? I do not like conflict. Anybody else would like to avoid conflict? I would like to avoid it. But sometimes it's inevitable. We can't. Thank God we have to address these things. But you know what happens when we don't have the moral courage to address sin today? We're often like Adam in the garden. Remember Adam? There was a situation. He's standing there with his wife and doesn't say anything. And then she encourages him. And he, knowing full well what she's asking him to do, is opposed to what God says. And what does he do? He goes along with what she says. And then they find out that they're now naked and ashamed. Because, folks, I'll tell you, when sin comes into your lives, it strips you of dignity and it shames you. And they're standing there trying to hide themselves with fig leaves. You know, they're trying to compensate. And a lot of the times we're not dealing with issues in our lives as we're so busy compensating with our, you know, to address our sin issues rather than face them and address them. God shows up on the scene. He says, Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He goes, well, I'm uh, I'm hiding. You know, if I'm a worshiper, I should be running to God. He was running away from God, you know. Well, how come you're running away from me, Adam? What's the problem? Well, I'm embarrassed. I'm naked. How do you know you're naked? Did you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Oh, Adam, Adam. And the man said, well, the woman you put here Adam really took responsibility for his condition. My sin is all your fault, God. You made me this way. Oh, I've heard people say that. I mean, how how upset can God get with me? I mean, you made me this way, God. God, you gave me this woman. She's the problem. Right? Didn't he say that? Sure he did. So then God turned to the woman and said, what, what are you up to? Well, you know, God, it's the serpent you created. <laughs> Do you know what I notice about humanity? We sure blame God for the mess we're in. He's the Savior, we're the problem, and we're blaming Him for our situation. How crazy is this? You know, recently I'm reading a book by uh, Dan Allender, a Christian counselor, and he's his friend from, school, from growing up years is Tremper Longman III, who we had in our church, and he's a biblical scholar. And they work together they, on writing books. And they've written a book. This was, I didn't realize how old it was, but it's one of the best books I've ever read on marriage. I'm just now f- getting close to finishing. It's called Intimate Allies. And they make this statement, and they say this, Redemption does not come, however, without a war. Wow, that's a profound statement. And what it basically says is that it costs something to bring forgiveness. It's a battle, folks. We need to understand something. To bring wholeness takes, you know, a battle. And I think we're afraid to be engaged in battle. So here we find it. To, I think before we can address the evil, to overcome it, we have to admit that there's evil. And then... We have to expect that if we're going to address evil, there's going to be a pushback from evil. Listen to what happened in chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show to us to prove your authority to do all this? In other words, who gave you the authority to start telling us what to do? Have we ever heard that before? Doesn't that sound like our culture? Who do you think you are? Mr. Big Stuff? You know, there's a song like that. Who do you think you are? I'm a child of the king. You know, this is his planet. He paid an awful price to redeem it, and I don't want to just let it go to hell on a cart and a handbasket. 
I want to stand up for what's right. I'm going to skip a few scriptures here because he's just talking that Jews require a miraculous sign. Greeks look for wisdom. They were asking for a sign. And even Moses, you know, God says, oh, I'll give you these signs so you can help convince these guys that I am who I, who I am. But then it says here, Jesus answers them in chapter 2, verse 19 to 21. He said, destroy this temple. This is the sign. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his own body. Now, there's a little play on words here you don't pick up in the English language. Let me give it to you. In the Greek, there's two different words for temple. One is the all, all the buildings, and that's what the Jews were talking about. Jesus said the temple he was talking about was the most holy place, the sanctuary, the dwelling place of God. And, and is Jesus truly not the temple of God? Sure, he was... It says in Colossians, he was the, you know, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was the temple of God. He says, I, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up on the third day. He was speaking of the resurrection. In another passage, it talks about when they asked for a sign, he says, the only sign this generation is getting is the sign of Jonah. And what was he talking about? That he would come out of the whale's belly after three days, out of the earth, out of death. Jesus was saying the sign would be that he would be raised from the dead. That's his authority. He conquers death. Now it's interesting in verse 17. It says, His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That word consume means it will cost me my life. It was the fact that Jesus went after these guys that cost him his life because they handed him over out of envy. They did not want to lose what they had worked so hard to attain to. And you know one of the reasons why we don't want to change? Because what we currently have is so good, we don't want to lose what we have. But if it's not healthy, we need to give it up. That's the problem. Because it's going to kill us. F.F. Bruce says, The zeal for the house of God, which Jesus manifested on that occasion, would yet be the death of him, and it certainly was. As a matter of fact, when he went to court... uh, it says here in Mark's gospel, and then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple. He never said man-made temple. And in three days we'll build another, not made by man. Now Jesus was talking about the resurrection. In John chapter 2, verse 22, it says, After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. See, when, he, when this was happening, they didn't get it. Later on, they understood it, it says. They believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. He took the sign of the resurrection to bring them to a place of belief. That was the sign that Jesus was offering his nation. That's the sign that he offers to us. That's where our faith can be placed in because of what he accomplished by, by what he did on overcoming death. And then it's interesting, he closes this way, the chapter, this little episode. Verse 23 to 25. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about men, for he knew what was in a man. You know, I was just thinking about that. Can Jesus trust us? What a powerful statement. You know, I remember years ago, and I, I think I've said this before, I was listening to Leith Anderson preach at a chapel service in, in, in seminary. And he preached a whole sermon. And he said, you know, usually we have an invitation. And it goes something like this, trust Jesus. But the whole message he preached that morning was, can God trust you? Can God trust you? Here, John says, it's hard for God to trust man because he knows how fickle and superficial we really are. Isn't that the truth? We waffle. We're all over the map. Do you have a superficial faith this morning? Is it just strictly an intellectual ascent? Is it just tradition? Is this just the way I was brought up? How is your faith impacting your life? In other words, how do you see Jesus this morning? Do you see him as he truly is loving, forgiving, caring, compassionate, but also engaged, courageous, and aggressively dealing with sin. Do you see that side of them too? Because you better put the full picture together. Amen? you got to see the full picture. Before we start pointing fingers at others, maybe we need to take a deep look within our own soul and ask ourselves the question, what kind of a worshiper am I? 
Isn't that how we started the sermon? This is how we're ending it. Have I allowed the temple of my soul to become defiled? Am I serving as a volunteer? Or do, do I see myself as a love slave? It'll change just exactly the way you're going to operate. Are you fully devoted to Christ? What kind of a worshiper are you? Let's stand this morning. You know, it's interesting when you're preaching through the Bible like this. When I started working on this sermon, I had nowhere, no idea where I was going with this thing. I just read the verses. I go, okay, where are we going with this, God? You're studying the text, you know, and all of a sudden you start realizing, boy, this is very intrusive. This is like really hard-hitting stuff. Amen? How many here say, you know what? I don't, I want to be someone that is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I want to have passion in my life. I'm not interested in being some sort of a volunteer for something. I want to go for it. And you know what? I think it's true in all of our lives. You know, if we look at ourselves, you, you probably say, you know, there's probably things in my life that I don't see about myself that only God sees. You think that's true? You think that's true? Matter of fact, I was, it was interesting to me. I'm reading this morning my devotional time. It says, and God led them into the wilderness in order to test them. I wonder sometimes if the wilderness experiences of our lives, the difficulties, the challenges, the things that we're experiencing are just not an opportunity for us to be tested, to see where our real allegiance is. And Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you have to do what? Lose it for my sake. And if you, try to, if you lose your life for Christ's sake, what ends up happening? You end up saving it. And what I'm inviting you to do today is really radical. What I'm inviting you to do today is say, I'm willing to lose my whole entire life for Christ's sake. I am willing to give my entire life for Christ's sake. I did that as a young person. I came to an altar. While everybody else left, I came. I wept for 30 minutes. I said, God, I want to be your love slave. And you know what? That was a defining moment in my life. It changed everything. From that point on, it wasn't what I wanted. It's, what do you want, God? What do you want, God? I just keep going down the track. You know, 30-some-odd years of serving God. 39 years almost. Amazing journey of saying, okay, what do you want? It's not what I want. What do you want, God? I'm going to say this. I can testify after all those years. If you will give your life away to Him, you will find life. But I've watched over the years so many people going, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to choose my life. I'm going to choose my ambition. I'm going to choose my goals. I'm going to seek this life. And you know what I witness over and over again? The loss, the loss, the loss, the loss. That's what I see over and over and over again. Jim Elliott was a missionary years ago. He lost his life as a missionary. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What I'm inviting you to do is give your life totally to Christ. Pray this radical prayer. We are, I prayed it, and you said amen to it, but I'm going to give you another chance because I don't even know if you knew what you were praying. But now you have an idea that if you pray this prayer, God may hear this prayer and say, okay, I'll take you up on that. If you pray this prayer with me this morning, search me, O oh God, see if there be any wicked way in me. Some of you go, I'm afraid to pray that prayer. I already know there's a few wicked ways in me. You know, he will show you. And then I think the beautiful part is lead me to the way everlasting. In other words, just because I have these issues, God, you're not going to abandon me. You're going to help me overcome them. You're going to give me victory in these areas in my life. Your power and your grace is greater than my sin. See, I believe Jesus is greater than any addiction. Did you hear me this morning? There is a power greater than sin, and it's Jesus. That is the greatest power on this planet. It's the greatest power. With every head bowed this morning, how many say, Pastor, I'm joining you. I'm on the journey. 
I want to be a fully committed follower of Christ. I want to give everything to him. And I'm going to let him search me. I'm not going to be afraid because God's a loving God. He already knows it's there, by the way. And he probably knows about some stuff in your soul that you don't even know about. It'll shock you to see it come up. And then you just say, okay, God, help me. Because, you know, if you do it this way, I'll tell you what will happen. God will be so gentlemanly about it that he will show you, and then you can deal with it. Because if you don't deal with it, I'll tell you what happens eventually. It's going to come out anyways. You're going to be exposed and disgraced and shamed. And You know what? I love you guys. I do not want you to be shamed or disgraced. I don't want me to be shamed or disgraced. I'm reading the Psalms. It says, keep me, O Lord. Do not allow me to be shamed or disgraced. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin. He's talking about dealing with this stuff so that we don't have to have it exposed publicly. We can deal with it privately. We can deal with this junk in our life and be set free. Amen? How many want to be free today? I want to be free today. I want to experience the freedom that Christ brings today. And so, Lord, we just raise our hands to you. We're just asking, come now, Lord Jesus. Send the fire of your spirit down, O God. Burn the dross of sin in our soul, O God. Lord, we confess our desperate need for you, O God. We cannot live a pure, holy, and undefiled life apart from you. And we recognize that. Lord, we confess that we are drawn to the things of this world. We are drawn, Lord, to all of these things that are going to perish with using. And Lord, you do allow us to use them for a a season. But let them never become idols in our souls. Let them never define our lives, O God. Lord, help us to be defined by who you are, Father. And may we serve you with all that is within us, O God. And may we move away from a mentality that says, I'm just a volunteer. It doesn't matter if I'm here or I'm not here. But Lord, help us to understand that we come to worship you and that we want to be amazing, devoted worshipers of you, O God. That we adore you with all of our hearts, O God. And that you can use our lives, Lord, even in courageous situations where we will do the right thing when others will flee and falter. We will stand upright, O God, and we will be your children in this this generation that's perishing and it's turning its back on you. Lord, may we boldly rise up, O God, and say, this is the way, walk ye in it. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.